We've really been taking our time as we've been going through 2 Peter. These first 11 verses have taken us a little while. But I wanted you to see the context for where we come to this morning. Verses 3 through 9, I believe along with verses 10 and 11, are meant to be extraordinarily encouraging. Remember, Peter's writing to suffering Christians. He's writing to them as he did in his first letter. In that case, he's writing because they have pressures coming from the outside, persecution, trouble, pressure brought to bear. In 2 Peter, the reminders are here because there's pressure that it comes from the inside as well, errors that spring up within the church, dangerous doctrine, dangerous false teachers, and there needs to be warning about that and encouragement and strengthening in the faith. These verses we've looked at prior to this morning tell us the Lord's given us everything we need for life and salvation. Now, please make note of that. It's a lovely, marvelous, comforting beginning point. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. All of it. That is the eternal word of God. Doesn't matter how you feel about it. It is not about your experience thereof, although you should be engaged with this. But Christian, never for a moment think you're lacking something from the Lord. That somehow your Heavenly Father is withholding something from you. He is not. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. He has done this by bringing you to the true knowledge of Him. He has given you precious and very great promises of salvation. He has made you a participant in the divine nature. He has helped you escape the corruption of this world. And now you're to be vigorously engaged in pursuing holiness adding to your faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. If you add these things, you're a productive believer. And if you don't, he says you've forgotten why you were converted to begin with. But if you've not practice these things and you've forgotten what are you well it may be that you're a sheep who has wandered that can be i will not deny that the text of scripture gives us the warning that it is possible as a christian to backslide to make mistakes to let the world influence you. But it also ought to alarm you. May I say this plainly? If you're not concerned about these things, you ought to be concerned about the status of your soul before God. 
I'll say it bluntly. There is no comfort provided to the person who treats these character traits, this matter of holiness, lightly. The Lord will not give you comfort, Christian, if you're living disobediently. I know, the question, well, are you actually the Lord's? Well, could be. But it also brings us to this morning's text. You see, assurance of salvation is part of what we are promised as Christians. You can actually possess assurance. This was a huge controversy coming out of the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church looked at Luther's and Calvin's doctrines of salvation, Zwingli and company, and said, well, if you can say that a person is justified solely and entirely by faith in Christ alone, how in the world will you ever motivate them to godliness? And how dare you think that a Christian can in this life actually know they're a Christian? If, if you could be assured of your salvation, what motivation would there be for you to behave yourself? In fact, at Trent, the Roman Catholic Church, we've often said this, excommunicated the gospel. And the reformers quit being reformers. They determined there was no hope. For one of the canons of Trent said, whoever teaches that we are saved solely and entirely by faith in Jesus Christ alone, let him be accursed. And whoever teaches that you can know without a doubt that you're a Christian is leading people astray. That is a special gift only a few may have. And yet the Apostle Peter here tells us you can. And further, he talks about making this calling and election certain. Now, see, our problem is we want our assurance in ways that the Lord doesn't sanction. We would like assurance on our terms, and we tend to ignore the terms of the text. You see, true assurance brings comfort now and joy later. But that comfort now and joy later are in some way inextricably linked to your concern about living a godly life. Consider first, godliness aids assurance. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Oh, my goodness. Peter uses that word. In fact, in his first letter, in the very first verse, he calls the recipients elect exiles. You'd think Peter would know how much difficulty the doctrine of election would cause, and he'd have the wisdom to stay away from it. Right? I mean, 
you'd think, you know, Paul, well, he's a brain. Paul's that extraordinarily trained rabbi, and he's wandering around up there in that great ethereal region of high doctrine, and here's Simon Peter, a fisherman, a common ordinary fellow. You'd think he'd know better, but oh my goodness, they end up preaching the same thing. Some years ago, a pastor friend told me about a conversation he'd had with one of his members. And the person had come up to him and said, Pastor, I don't believe what you preach about election. The pastor said, well, what do you believe about election? The response, I don't know what I believe. I just know I don't believe what you believe. Now that, that's a sound position, isn't it? I don't know what I believe. I just know you're wrong. Hmm. If Simon Peter had only known, but you know, while it's not part of our text this morning, I looked ahead to the 12th verse and he says, at that place, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Peter doubles down on this thing. I intend always to remind you of these things, always. Do you grasp that these uncultured, uneducated, often poverty-stricken, oftentimes slaves, persecuted believers of the first century that did not yet have a completed New Testament were well acquainted with these words, calling and election? And they weren't afraid of them. The two words actually in the original language are very close They're all connected to a word group, kaleo, which sounds a little bit like call, doesn't it? In the first case, it's about calling, and literally, election is the calling out. Now, whenever Peter uses the words calling and election, what is it that he means? Calling is not merely an invitation, and in this case, calling is not about your duty or your task as a Christian. In other words, it's not about a call to ministry. Rather, calling here is, as one brother puts it, a royal command which man must obey. The essence of it is this, my friend. God issues a call that our forefathers called an effectual call. A call that has power in it. Just this past week in doing funeral service, I targeted the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, one of my favorite stories, as Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus. And that is such an encouraging text. But that text also serves as a demonstration of the power of the Son of God, not only over the power of physical death, but as a reminder that he is the one who calls us to life. John 5 says, The hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And I believe that's about spiritual life, because later he says, The day is coming when those who are in the graves will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they'll come forth. In John 11, it's physical power, to call Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. 
Spiritually, my friend, that's exactly what happens when you became a Christian. He called you by omnipotent, almighty power. And you heard and you believed. I know somebody's immediately going to say, well, wait a minute, that whole election thing. You say, I can become a Christian. How do I know if I'm elect? What am I, do I crawl up into heaven and look for the Lamb's book of life? You know? How am I supposed to? Here, here let me, let, my friend, if you're not a Christian, here, let me tell you how to know you're elect. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Believe. Well, what about this other stuff? That other stuff's none of your business yet. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. But oh my friend, once we have come to faith, we know that something happened. A royal summons. We cannot fully understand it, and yet we know that he had to take action. Election is nothing more than simply saying, God chooses. I know everybody... Well, what about free will? Okay, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. You ready? Let me help you out. You're free. You're free as your nature allows. Now, when I say that, you're free as your abilities permit you. That's another way to put it. I've often said this. By your free will, I ask that right now you levitate. I've done this for years. I've yet to see a levitation. Because you don't have the ability. Doesn't matter how free your will is, you don't possess ability. Until the Lord comes and frees you from your bondage, until He awakens you by that effectual call, you'll not turn. And Christian, if you look back, Many of you are going to testify this is exactly what happened because you sat under the gospel, many of you, for a long time until one day it was like, oh, oh, I'm lost. I, I need Jesus. Power of the Spirit, God. You see, my friend, this calling and election means that the initiative is God's. I've been reading Mike Horton's new volume, Recovering Our Sanity. Brilliant title for our era, as there seems to be much insanity out there. Listen to what he says. If you come to know God, the true and living God, your first response will be fear. You're astonished at how unlike anyone or anything he is. You do not have the intellectual, psychological, moral, or emotional equipment to handle, much less explain it. You're not in charge. You realize you've not discovered God, He's discovered you. He knows you inside and out. You now know, not just intellectually, but deep in your heart, that you're a sinner in the presence of a holy God. It's disorienting, because it's not what your little voice within would ever tell you. And there's nowhere to flee from this 
disoriented encounter. This fear, though, leads us to acknowledge that we need a mediator, someone to intercede for us and to reconcile us to God. Now that's what he means by calling an election. Election is God's choice in eternity. Calling is that working that out in time and on earth. But here he goes on to say, now this is going to sound peculiar. Because we don't put these things together. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm their calling an election. Oh, whoa, wait, preacher, come on. You just said God's the one that does the calling and the electing, and now you turn around and tell me I'm supposed to make it sure. Yes, you are. Christian, this is your duty, a duty that is assigned to you. Mr. Whitfield, the great preacher of the First Great Awakening, was one time asked by one of the, his lordships in England if he would use his influence in the upcoming general election. Somehow this seems appropriate in light of where we are. Anybody besides me already sick of political ads? Oy vey. Mr. Whitfield responded with this kind of answer. I know very little about general elections, but if your lordship would take my advice, you should make your own particular calling an election, sure. I like that. See, my friend, we are called here to make effort to have assurance of our own salvation. Now, when the New Testament talks about assurance, you can basically summarize what it gives us in three headings. One is simply the assurance to believe the promise of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's the beginning point. You take God at his bare word, you repent, you believe, you're a Christian. That's the opening, if you will. Secondly, we're told in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now that is a profoundly experiential thing. It is the Spirit of God bearing witness internally that we are adopted, that we actually belong to the Lord. And then there's a third. The third is you test yourself to see whether you be in the faith. This is the point of the entirety of 1 John. Do you pass the tests? Now, as I thought about that, I see Peter actually uses all three of these. He refers us to great and precious promises. Believe the promise of God. He calls us partakers in the divine nature. That sounds a lot like the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. But he goes on to say, if you possess these qualities, verses 10 and 11 are the extension of the latter of these. You see, the Word of God demands that I demonstrate my calling and election by the graces of the Christian life. I will behave a certain way if I'm His. It is not a call to perfection. It is a call to progress. You and I are to live out the Christian life. Paul will say in Ephesians 1.4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? that we should be holy and blameless before him. Calling an election has a purpose. The purpose is to conform you 
to the image of Christ. The graces that are mentioned in verses 5, 6, 7 are evidence of calling and election. The Christian wants to be godly and will make every effort that direction. Christian, if you cried out with the psalmist, the 139th Psalm, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. You and I are to do this diligently. Another way one brother put it, the jewel of assurance doesn't fall into the lap of a lazy soul. You are to put forth effort here. The believer knows assurance isn't a matter of just his own observation. It is a gift of God. But he also knows that he must pursue these things. If the Lord knows me and I know him as a result, it changes my priorities. It changes how I think. It affects how I live. And when I read lists like this, or when I read of the fruit of the Spirit, or I read about the qualities in Romans 8 of a believer, when I see all of those things, it motivates me. I will have these things. I will honor the one who has loved me and given himself for me. And not in isolation, but rather in community and around other believers. It has an effect. I start caring about excellence and virtue. I care about godliness. I care about self-control. And that shows up. It shows up in the way I treat my spouse. It shows up in the ways I treat my children. And in children, how you treat your parents. It shows up in how we treat one another here. It shows up in how you behave at the workplace. My friend, all of these things are to be in your life. Would you have assurance? Then pursue these character traits, not in order to be saved, but rather because you are. This is how you live. This is how you show faith. Oh, Christian, these character traits, godliness aids assurance. But secondly, godliness secures stability. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You ever wonder, have you ever pondered, have you ever had a fear of falling into sin? You ever had a trembling moment? A mistrust of yourself that makes you wary? Now please understand, I don't mean that a true believer could ever fall away, but here's what I mean. The stability that godliness grants keeps us from falling. We do this diligently. Now, we do this all the time in other capacities, right? If I mean, you know people who work to keep up their career skills, right? Um, 
Police officers train in better techniques for doing their jobs safely and effectively. Physicians read journals, learn from new research so they can be better healers. Uh, mechanics learn about new technology, get new equipment to improve their skills. All of these things, we do things to improve in our particular areas, right? That's always the target. But hear what I'm about to say as well. Christian, you and I are to labor in these things. We are to build these graces into our lives so that when temptation comes, we're ready. When witnessing opportunities come, we're ready. When we need somebody to go on a mission trip or a counselor at camp or teach a Sunday school class, you're ready. This text is about being ready to face temptations that come to all of us, that could lead us to fall and fail, to cheat, to be popular no matter the cost, to compromise our principles, to be unfaithful or spiritually proud. You and I are to strive with everything in us. We are to give diligence to these things. Now, please hear me. I know some of you say, I'm already tired. You're going to give me something else. I'm going to give you something that's life-giving. You know, there are some things you do that by their very nature are exhausting. You'll have to fill in the blank, but you know the things you do that just wear you out. There are other things that you and I do, and we put in energy into them, but in putting the energy in, it actually strengthens us. We gain from it. This pursuit of holiness this godliness secures stability. And we must never forget Jude 24 and 25, to him who's able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. And preacher, you got two things going on here got the sovereignty of God and salvation that's all of grace and then you turn around and say but once you got these things you got to do something with them folks the prior grace is what enables you to do those things it is God who works in you both to will and to do so do and in the doing you'll gain assurance so godliness aids our assurance Godliness secures stability. It keeps us from falling. But finally, godliness enriches eternity. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this way. In what way? This way of diligence. Diligently practicing these qualities. There is a beginning of heaven to be had in this life. You're not looking just to barely get in. Okay, I mean, that happens, right? The, the folks that barely get in. I look at it this way. Thief on the cross didn't have a chance to do any single good work once in his life. All he does is cry out, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does Jesus say to him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. I love that. And to me, that is a glorious thing. I think he had an abundant entrance into the kingdom of glory. And I love the way another brother put it. The Lord saved one thief on the cross so nobody would despair. 
but only one, so nobody would presume. You're waiting around until that deathbed moment to come to repentance and faith. You are playing with your eternal destiny, my friend. Don't be a fool. Repent and believe now. Diligently practicing these things keeps us in a place we have a rich inheritance. Paul will warn in 1 Corinthians 3rd chapter, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, Christian, if your attitude about living the Christian life is this, you know what, I'm not going to worry about that stuff. I believed in Jesus. I'll just make it by the skin of my teeth, but I'll make it then I want to encourage you in something. You need to look whether or not you even know Jesus. If this word does not challenge you, does not move you to repentance, does not move you to think, I need to work at this, I need to labor at this, I need to give this more energy. I give energy to my job, I give energy to my family, I give energy to my hobbies, and whatever's left over I give to the Lord. You might want to flip the priorities here. Never forget the most alarming words of the entire New Testament. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, did I not do this, this, this? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Oh, Christian, don't escape us by fire. As I think of the number of times I have officiated funerals, and over the years, how many good and godly people have gone home. Part of what encourages my heart is that in my mind, in my heart, I, 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 I think of Bunyan's comment about the pilgrims as they go through the river, symbol of death. And when they get to the other side, they are welcomed and received. <laughs> and they mount up higher and higher till they're out of sight as they are welcomed home. Well done. Good faithful servant. Would you have assurance? Would you have that glorious, rich entrance into the kingdom? Then pursue these things. And in the pursuing of them, you're pursuing Him. For He, the Lord Jesus, had these traits in absolute, infinite dimension. This is what it means to be called 
that you may reflect Christ and be made like Christ, to be chosen to be like Him. Christian, are these the things you pursue as you pursue Him? Oh, that we may be grasped and having been grasped by Him, having been captured by Him, may we then pursue Him who has so captured us. Would you be assured? You make certain of your calling and your election. And do that by pursuing godliness. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that we would enter heaven not as having escaped from a shipwreck, from a fire, 